Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Red Devil is in the detail. Manchester United fans, you're going to love this week's Gegenpod. Man United columnist and correspondent Sam Pilger joins us, along with resident fan and former Matilda Amy Duggan, to talk about all things Manchester United after the club's first trophy in six years. A deep dive into all things Man U, plus the other top headlines from world football. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. Yes, Manchester United fans, if you weren't enjoying the week enough already, we now have quite the gig and pod for you. We start with our resident Manchester United fan and former Matilda, Amy Duggan. Amy, uh, I'm guessing it was a very happy weekend for you. Still a happy week, and uh, hopefully that will continue tomorrow. <laughs> and our special guest this week, you would have read his work on the Optus Sport app and website, our Manchester United columnist and correspondent, it's Sam Pilger. Sam, it's great to have you on the gig and pod for the first time. It's great to be here. Thanks Thanks very much for having me. Let's start with the League Cup final. 2-0 for Manchester United, a game which seemed largely in their control from start to finish. At least that's the impression I got. But Sam, uh, let's get your initial reactions to a first piece of silverware of the season in the English game, but also the first piece of silverware of the Eric Ten Hag era at Manchester United. Yeah, I, I thought... Um, actually, I slightly disagree. I thought United, I mean didn't play at their best but I think that that shows what a winner Ten Hag is um, I think he said we were it wasn't the best football but um, we it was effective and uh, Newcastle I think probably had the better of the first half and yet at, at half time it was 2-0 to United so um, Ten Hag uh, made I think probably made one mistake in the final which was to select Diego Dallo at right back, which really surprised me because I think Aaron Wan-Bissak has been exceptional for the last two months. But like any good manager, he he acknowledged his mistake and rectified it at half-time, brought on Wan-Bissaka, and, uh, who was arguably United's best player in the second half, shut down um, his side of the pitch. Dallo was on a yellow card, so um, I thought that was very smart. But um, yeah, I, I, I think look, finals are not the place to play your best football. Finals are a place to win. And uh, that's what Ten Hag did. I want to just touch on some of the tactical decisions that were made at halftime, as you've already um, you've alluded to there, because we, we t- the team turned quite defensive um, at that point and really kind of held on to the win. And it wasn't the same team in the second half. But like you said, some of those subs really made a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Um... I think the game was won. I mean, that that was his attitude. It's 2-0. We've scored our goals. We don't need to score anymore. We've got a bit of a cushion with a two-goal lead. So, yeah, I mean, the substitutions as well with Wan-Bissaka, but also with Sabitzer and McTominay coming on uh, with 20 minutes still to go. And there could have been extra time as well. So that was a bit of a risk. 
because um, it was a bit looked a bit of a defensive move, but it it, it worked to perfection. Um, Newcastle didn't have a great chance. I think I think Murphy shot span past the post after eighty eight minutes. The best chance was Saint Maximin midway through the first half that De Gea saved. So um, yeah, he, he, I mean his game management, his substitutions have been incredible. I think Ten Hag. Before the final, United have got the most goal-scoring substitutions in um, in the Premier League. Nineteen goals from the bench. So uh, he, his uh, his game management has been has been fantastic. As far as that first trophy, the chance for celebration. I mean, after any cup final, you're always going to have happy scenes. But it did feel as though there was quite a, a lot of relief in addition to celebration. Almost like a, a sense of identity of Manchester United was restored. What was the impression you got, though, of the aftermath? Because it seemed to be a, a bit of a balancing act between let's enjoy this moment, uh, balanced with there's more things to contend for and more challenges to come, which is, of course, always the uh, the annual challenge of the League Cup winner. But what was your impression of it? I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's the first trophy in, in six years. I mean, that's the longest drought for Manchester United for a trophy for, for over, uh, over 40 years. So... Although it's the League Cup, the least prestigious of the four trophies on offered to them, it, it was a it was a day to celebrate at Wembley, the first time United won a trophy in six years. You know, I think there's been a bit of sniping from other fans saying, "Oh, look at them! It's only the League Cup," but it, it it's a trophy, and 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 United have, have you know more recently lost in in finals. They lost a FA Cup final to Chelsea, lost the Europa League final to Villarreal. So there's there is relief. To win something, but I think it, you know, fine margins in football, and uh, you know, Ten Hag is now a winner. He's the first trophy he's had to win, uh, and and he's done it the first first opportunity. So you know, it, it acts as a catalyst for other trophies. Obviously, Sir Alex Ferguson's great era was 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 based on cup competitions, uh, winning the uh, the FA Cup, the now defunct European Cup Winners' Cup, and a League Cup. The League Cup was the last trophy in '92 the season they before they won the Premier League and then went on to dominate the Premier League. So winning cup competitions is is hugely important and, and just gives such confidence and, and momentum. I will definitely take the trophy, let me tell you, as a fan. I'm happy to have any silverware. Uh, Ten Hag, obviously, in his post-match interview, said there's still plenty more work to be done. And then he made a comical error, <laughs> leaving the trophy behind. That, that's right, and 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 at the end of the press conference, he he forgot it, and and he sort of said, uh, "Oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll win. I'll win some more this season." Or, or you know, so that just shows huge confidence. I think he did take the trophy with him, obviously, <laughs> but you know, it, 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 the, the confidence is just flowing through the team now. As far as putting it in context of the start of his tenure as Manchester United manager. Uh, how do you say it tracks with what he's been doing uh, in terms of his decisions, how he's transforming the team, but also how it's being reflected in the performance on the pitch and sort of building into potentially a quite legitimate title race now uh, where the gap can still be closed on the top two? That's right. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's the Q word, the quadruple, which sounds a bit ridiculous, but, but it, it, is, it is more than possible. Um, I, think, I, don't th- I, just, I don't think they've got the squad for that but i mean which sounds even ridiculous to even debate the debate debate the topic excuse me but um i i think i think i mean obviously arsenal and manchester city both won at the weekend while united had the cup cup competition i think playing um 
that extra Europa League and being exhausting two legs against Barcelona, I think United will probably run out of steam in the Premier League. But the but the priority was always to finish in the top four. And that was debatable before the season starts, especially after the first two league games. Um, so, you know, a top four and one more trophy would be a, an incredible season. Let's go back to those uh, big losses, because obviously to Brighton and then to Brentford in August, I, I think all Manchester United fans are just sitting there, eyes wide open, shaking our heads, saying, what is going on? Um, but, you know, Ten Hag's come in, his player selections have changed, uh, even, you know, benching Casemiro for the first few weeks that he was there. Tracker man's come in. There's been some hefty uh, mental changes within the squad and that's obviously created a different culture what can you give us some insight into to some of those big moments I mean you're right I mean you look at those defeats in August that was still a work in progress uh Casemiro hadn't signed um which was a huge uh signing Anthony hadn't signed as well um he was still getting to grips with 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 the side um but uh, but since then, you know, over and it's only, we're only talking months now. Obviously, he's got all the all the big decisions right. Really, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo. We forget that completely now, but that was a huge deal. Um, I think he wasn't keen to work with him, but then uh, accepted the fact that that you know that's the irony. Ronaldo didn't have anywhere else to go. That's the only really reason he stayed. And he thought, okay, fine, I'll work with him. Ideally, he didn't want to. But then, when it looked like it wasn't working, he didn't he didn't stand in his his way. He he wanted to get rid. The club captain, obviously Harry Maguire, that's a huge issue too. Um, he's dropped Harry Maguire. Um, he noticed with Jaden Sancho, he was late for uh, training. His training wasn't quite good enough. He realised there wasn't something there. So rather than just week by week, you know, he 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 shut him out of the squad for three months, sent him to the Netherlands, which which is incredible. So it shows the he's he's not afraid to make the the big decisions, even through to Marcus Rashford being dropped for the Wolves game. And that was only on the morning of that he was late for a team meeting, but that was on it was a twelve thirty kickoff. And so he changed it. He'd already picked his team and then he had to change his teams. And he'd Rashford had overslept. And I've seen Bruno Fernandes say since, and I understand, you know, other players, that was the moment, you know, Rashford was in a great scoring form and they looked around at each other and thought, geez, this guy is not, not kidding. Um, you know, we want to be part of this and we can't slack. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, so far so good. He, he does seem to have got most of the big decisions right. When Ten Hag was in Australia uh, in the preseason tour of the uh, match against Crystal Palace at the MCG, starting his tenure, the travelling English press pack were really unhappy with the level of access they were getting to him through the club, and it seemed <laughs> as though there was quite a protective bubble around Eric Ten Hag. But with each of those key decisions that you've outlined there and some of the real moments that he stamped his authority on the team, because the results have followed, has there been a greater acceptance of Ten Hag's process? Or do you feel as though there's still um, a, a real criticism of the process in spite of the results he's now getting? I think access is a huge uh, problem across the Premier League, really. Um, and uh, if those English journalists, I can fully uh, sympathise uh, with that the uh, for, for the product and and the, the the league that it is i mean i've worked in i've worked in the us and and in, in the nba and been to super bowls and the access there is incredible you know they let you into the locker room the changing room 10 minutes after the the final whistle so that's never going to happen in the premier league but um i think i think united have worked 
harder to to do to to um, to try and connect the players and the fans again. I mean, I always smile because it said, "Oh, this bonds back," you know. But that's winning. Winning does everything. Winning makes everything look great. You know, the bond is back because they they're winning. That's the only reason. Um, the bond wouldn't be there if they were drawing in twelfth in the in the in the in the table. So I, I think United have made some efforts in terms of I think there was a press conference where there there were specially invited fans who asked questions and, and they try a bit. But I think you know journalists moaning about access. No one cares about that as long as the, as long as the team's winning and and they are. And I think and you know this week Ten Hag wrote a. a um, an open letter to the, the the fans saying how great it was to win together and we're on this journey together. You know, all cliche-laden stuff. There wasn't anything extraordinary in it, but it's a nice touch, you know. Um, I'm a journalist and a fan, and I, I got an email from, as did hundreds of thousands, saying from Eric Tanhag. So it's those little things that, that, that do matter. What also matters is the trophies, and we've touched on their wins so far, but they're still going in the FA Cup, still going in the Europa League. Um You've mentioned that you don't think the squad has the depth to compete at all of these, which as a fan, I find your real view on the world um, a shame, a shame on you. Um, <laughs> I try and live with with this hope and faith that they will, you know, pull rabbits out of hats all the time. But on a serious note, uh, how will the squad be juggled? Because, for example, tomorrow the reports say they could be missing up to five plays, including Luke Shaw and, and including Fred. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think... What's been remarkable, though, about Ten Hag, as you will have seen throughout the whole season, even going back to early Carabao Cup games, which I suppose has been justified because they won it, he just doesn't rotate much. They, you know, the, the, um, Solskjaer, Ferguson, they would change the whole team, 11 players. But I think this is, I don't think he, and, it, and it's paid off handsomely, I don't think he felt he could um, rotate too much. He needed the chemistry. He wanted to get his team up and running. Um I think, though, yeah, um, the FA Cup game against West Ham will probably be the first opportunity where th- there's more changes uh, th- than we've seen before, especially with Liverpool at the weekend and then Real Betis and, and, and it goes on and on and on. Um, so uh, I think there will be a few more changes. Yeah, he, he, Martial is still out, Shaw and, and Fred, there's doubts over. Um so there, there probably will be a bit more changes, but I mean, I think I think the two, I think if United and the, I suppose this goes to the Glazer ownership and and selling it, and they spent a lot of their budget in the summer, but if you think United were in the hunt for four trophies, and he was just given two loan players, I think if they were really serious, that was a time to think to to really help him out. But I think the uncertainty around the club uh, went against him. But but so far, of course. And Sabitzer, in their own ways, have 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 been uh, have been great additions. But I think the thing is, as I alluded to, the the, the depth of the squad. You think? Why? I mean, I wince every time Rashford pulls up with a slight strain or knock. I mean, that you take Rashford out of this side, um, and it looks it, it looks very different. You mentioned the tie coming up against Betis and the two legs against Barcelona were really memorable European nights and a great moment for the Europa League given that 
both of those teams would rather be in the Champions League, of course. But just looking at the last 16, Juve are more than 10 points off Champions League after their points deduction now. So their best hope of getting into the Champions League is to win the Europa League. You've still got Arsenal in there, Roma, uh, Sociedad could be tricky, Shakhtar, Donetsk, a great story, and of course Sevilla, who seem to win it every second year. Um, how realistic do you think it is that Manchester United can keep this European run going, given there are plenty of... Uh, you know, under you know semi-regular circumstances, Champions League caliber teams still competing in that Europa League last sixteen. I mean, yeah, it'll be it'll be difficult. I think the fact that obviously every game isn't every tie rather isn't isn't is two legged. So over two legs, the better team should prevail. I think United would arguably be favourites for it, especially after beating Barcelona. But it is a slog. It is a real slog. Uh, and 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 the ties, you know, with the Champions League ties, there's three weeks spaced out. The the the, uh, the Europa League, they're playing Betis twice in the space of a week, um, so that's going to be hard with injuries and 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 tiredness. Um, yeah, as you said, there's some great teams left in it: Juventus, Arsenal, uh, Roma. Possibly, you'd have to say Arsenal are the favourites, really. But maybe maybe they might go a, ease up a bit. You know, want to prioritise the the Premier League. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Ten Hag has, you know, coached uh, Ajax one kick away from the Champions League final. He would love to uh, to win a European trophy. United have looked impressive in 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 the Europa League, so I think they've got a great chance. It's touching back on that that squad building depth and obviously the transfer strategy. Um, what is your assessment of him of Eric Ten Hag in the market so far, and then the development and rejuvenation of players he's inherited? Uh, we've obviously mentioned he didn't want to work with Cristiano Ronaldo, and in fact, um, you know, saying goodbye to Cristiano is heartbreaking in one sense, but for the team has has definitely been the best thing that could have happened. But what's your assessment of 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 that player kind of squad building part of the game? I think it's been one of his strongest parts, really, and I think luck plays a big, a huge part as well in in any in in sport. I mean, if you think Casemiro has, has I mean, I saw a piece today that's saying, which is probably a bit premature, saying, you know, Casemiro's having the Eric Cantona effect on on Manchester United as a winner, lifting players, and I don't disagree too much, but it it, it seems a bit early. But if you think United's priority last summer was Frankie De Jong. And if they'd signed De Jong, the the deal was agreed with Barcelona, but uh, De Jong was adamant he didn't he didn't want to come. Um, there would be no Casemiro at Old Trafford. So, uh, um, and he has beyond uh, he's probably been the biggest uh, impactful signing uh, from last uh, last summer. So luck does play a part. But I think I think yeah, I don't think any of his signings, as I mentioned, including his two loan uh, signings, have. Uh, They've all they've all uh, made a huge impact. Um, even you know Anthony. Um, I say even Anthony. He's got six seven goals, including a winner against Barcelona. He's a hugely frustrating player, and certainly hasn't looked like an eighty five million pounds player yet. But if 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 you're not sure about a guy and he's scoring the winner against Barcelona, he, he's not doing uh, too badly. But uh, yeah, I mean, even you know, Malassia is probably the one who uh, uh, Tyrell Malassia is probably the one who hasn't made the biggest impact. But I think he's he's played well whenever he's uh, played, and and like Alex Tellers did a couple of years ago, he's really pushed on Luke Shaw, um, who, who's been exceptional. So uh, he he's he's 
I think he's a player that, uh, sorry, a manager. He'll certainly be trusted with, with money because he hasn't got anything wrong yet. So I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper on that kind of question, if I can, with you, Sam. Sure. Um, a lot of the the players that he has targeted or is targeting in the future, uh, we've you know we've read about Tracker Man coming in, um, and then also that some of this is not actually about the footballer attributes; it's more about the personal attributes. Can you give us any more light on that? I think there was a frustration that United just didn't have the right characters. Um, and I think there was a frustrating um, that that players were brought in and not enough research done on um, into the background, into players, whether they wanted wanted to come. So Darren Fletcher, particularly the former United player, is in the backroom staff now. Um, has has done has done a lot of the legwork there. John Murta, the the football director. Um, yeah, as you've seen this season, there seems to be good characters, Varane, Casemiro, Martinez. Um, unless, unless players, you know, I mean, this is a few years ago now, like like Angel de, de Maria, you know, obviously who came and was a huge signing, one of the best players in the world in, in 2014. But he did not want to come to Manchester United. Real Madrid wanted to sell him, the deal was done. And you end up with an unhappy player who doesn't want to be there, who gave up halfway through the season and was sold, obviously, onto Paris Saint-Germain. And United didn't want a repeat of that with somebody like Casemiro. And they didn't. They they did put some effort into finding. Of course, Casemiro would want to come to Manchester United. Would want the payday. But did he really want to be there? Would he just, just uh, uh, you know, be there for a bit of an extended holiday and and to make do? But in in the research they did, they they found that that no, he he really wanted to come to the Premier League. He wanted the challenge, and that's been spectacularly proved right. So I think, you know, it seems silly when you're spending sixty, seventy million pounds on a player that it should be this great innovation to actually do some research on, on them. But but it's paid off, and they're they're certainly spending a bit more time on on finding the right characters. Let's stick with Casemiro then, because uh, I was going to ask you if he was Manchester United's best signing since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club. Uh, you've blown that out of the water by suggesting that he's having the Cantoner effect. I mean, not you personally, but re- referencing the uh, the Cantoner uh, effect being discussed. But where does he stack up? Because it, it seems as though performances, character, also just the uh, the outcry about him getting suspended for that game away to Arsenal and his value to the team. I mean, in his absence, his value was perhaps demonstrated just as much as when he's there. So where do you think he stacks up as far as you know, the great signings that have been made as Manchester United have tried, you know, a handful of different managers since Sir Alex Ferguson? Well, I think, I mean, in terms of an immediate impact, um, he he would certainly certainly be up there if you think, you know, he's won a trophy now after six months and, and, and been, uh, been exceptional. I mean, if you look at a player like, you know, Paul Pogba, who was there for six years and, and probably didn't make as much impact in six years as Casemiro has made in, 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 in six months... Um, you know, and you could see that in the final against Newcastle. I think Casemiro has won about twenty trophies now in his career, and and the League Cup he celebrated and enjoyed as as much as any. And there was a moment there where where he managed to win United a goal kick, and and he puffed out his chest and was was screaming and punching the air. And Varane and Martinez came over and sort of high fived him. It, 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 it you know it is that that winning mentality. Uh, that 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 he is he has uh, he has brought from the club and 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 he um, you know he he's loved it he's really enjoyed it 
Uh, he's scoring more goals. He's, he's sort of his game has sort of evolved slightly. You know, he's scoring more goals. Um, but you know, we talked just there about players who want to be there. The 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 the, the deal was being done as the Brentford game in August was unfolding and United were losing 4-0 to Brentford. And rather than put him off, he's, you know, it, it, he sent a text to his agent saying, I'll, I'll fix this, you know. And he's been as good as his word as well. So, um, you know, he, he, he's, uh, he's, no, he's been a fantastic character. There was also the City uh, 6-3 game where he was on the bench uh, with his head hanging in shame, shaking. You could just tell that he really wanted to get out there and do something different. And it has been absolutely wonderful to see him score goals as well. And let's stick with the goal scoring theme, um, if that's okay. We touched on Marcus Rashford and you saying you get scared every time he you know, uh, grabs his hammy or, or goes down because he's so important to this team. Is he having the best season since some of the big names, big names like Ronaldo, big names like Wayne Rooney at this club. Are we going to see more of this if he doesn't get injured? I mean, I think I think so. I mean, I mean that's 25 goals now. They, they credited him with the, the Newcastle uh, one. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous to think that some people... And rightly so. And, yeah, yeah, and rightly so, exactly. No one wants the own goal, and, and, and you're right, yeah. Um, but uh, he... Uh, yeah, he's been he's been exceptional this this season, and you know, to Ten Hag's credit, he sort of said, "Look, this isn't me. You know, uh, this isn't just me. I'm you know, I'm not Harry Potter. I'm not a wizard, and and uh, you know, the credit must lie with him too. It's it's incredible to think that you know, I mean, he had such a poor season last year that that some thought, oh well, you know, he he's a he's busted. That's it. You know, he had such incredible talent, and uh, that's been nurtured in the right way. Now he's still so young as well, and I, I you know, I think. He's 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 flown past a hundred goals. The uh, we saw Harry Kane just become Tottenham's all-time leading scorer, and I think you know, um, you know, staying injury injury clear, staying in this sort of form. The United records Rooney just passed Bobby Charlton a few years ago, two hundred fifty-three goals. I think it was. I think Rashford must. Have, I think he's halfway there, but I think Rashford's got to have that in his uh, in his sights. Um, he's. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a joy to watch, really. One of the columns you wrote recently for Optus Sport was about Anthony and price tag balanced against performance. Until uh, Unless uh, football undergoes a, another major inflation in transfer fees in order to dwarf Anthony's own price and put it in a, a context that makes it look like a bargain. For now, it stands out as a huge outlay. Uh, where do you see his progress? Because the column um, was written before a couple of weeks before the League Cup final, and big moments like this um, can certainly help uh, swing public sentiment quite dramatically. I find him personally a frustrating player because he he plays on the on the his uh, left footed player that plays on the right, um, and his tendency is always to cut inside, so it makes it easier to defend against. Yeah, I mean, Iron Iron Robin obviously for for Bayern Munich and the Netherlands made a career of that. But and and I I find he sometimes slows down play because he he's hesitant to go on the outside, and he'll come inside, and often he holds on to the ball too much as well. Um, but he's twenty two or, or or just turned twenty three. This is his first year in the Premier League. Um, you know, Ten Hag has great faith in him, and as I said earlier, you have to trust him with his signings and the players he's brought through. But um, I, I think that's a that's a it's a huge amount of money. I mean, you know, Ajax sort of held them to ransom a bit earlier in the summer. He was around for about 
the cheaper 50 million by the time at the end of the market they were like look pay this or he's not coming they wanted 100 million euros which equates to about 85 million pounds um obviously that that's a huge burden the transfer fee um but um yeah i think there's a lot more to see from him but he, he certainly frustrates me do, do you think having a price tag like that put on you, and obviously it's out in the open market and people know about it and fans talk about it, that there is uh, a different level of expectation regardless of how old you are? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, I mean, you know, players often say, oh, you know, during their career, say, oh, it doesn't matter, I can't control that. But but the, but then afterwards we'll, we'll admit to it. And I, I think, um, you know, Harry Maguire remains the world's most expensive defender ever at eighty million pounds. That that hasn't been beaten yet, and I don't know when it will be. But but clearly, you know, if Harry Maguire comes in for twenty five million, he's seen in a different perspective. If you pay the biggest transfer fee ever for a defender, you expect a world class to defender. That's not quite been the case with Maguire, and the same with Anthony. If he'd come in at, um, you know. 25, 30 million, you thought, oh, good addition, good addition for the squad. But at 85 million pounds, you're expecting, um, you know, world-class performances every every week. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, strangely, in United's recent transfers, you know, the two biggest, Maguire and Pogba, have, have, have not been successes. So hopefully uh, Anthony can buck that trend. My understanding is Maguire is still under contract until 2026. He is 29, but he's being sparingly used this season. Is this a case of him being out of favour and can win his way back into favour? Or is it more likely that come the summer, uh, Harry Maguire will be sold maybe to try and offset spending uh, elsewhere? Uh, I think he will be sold. I think there's a... Well, I can't guarantee that, but I think there's a high chance. United, for, for FFP rules, do need to sell before they buy. And I think you look at players who could raise the transfer fee and, and Harry Maguire would be one of them. Um, I think, and, and and that's on the basis that the manager clearly, you know, in, in football parlance, doesn't fancy him. Um, he was the club captain. You'd try and make the best of it. But, you know, Varane and Martinez have been exceptional. He's played Luke Shaw as a left-back at centre-back instead of him. He seems to even prefer Victor Lindelof in front of Harry Maguire. So I think Maguire has, has has gone very rapidly because I think when Varane was bought, you know, 18 months ago, it was United need a partner for um, Maguire. And now he's the fourth choice um, uh, centre-half at best. You, know, I mean, it, 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 I wouldn't say embarrassing, that's too strong. But obviously when you're the captain and you get come on for the last five minutes and then you lift the cup. Um, but... but um, uh, you know, it's great for him that he finally won something there as well. And he'd obviously played in the, some part in the earlier rounds. But I think as well for him personally, personally, as you said, you know, 29 approaching 30, which is still a good age for a central defender. He won't want this. It's it, it's a bit demeaning. It's a bit embarrassing. Uh, he probably, he's, he deserves to play for another team every week. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's highly likely Maguire will, will be sold in the summer. Do you think that his wages could be prohibitive to him being sold? Or given that he's English, you know, counts for the homegrown rules for uh, Premier League teams, that there'll definitely be a market for him? I mean, is there enough money in the Premier League to extract Harry Maguire from Manchester United? Or is it a case where he'll be happy to leave because he wants to be a first-team footballer? I think, I mean, I think as you touch on, I mean, I think the problem with Manchester United selling players, they ha- in, in the last five, ten years, they've been 
been dreadful sellers. If you look at uh, even Manchester City last year, saying Azus and, and Raheem Sterling, they they raised a lot more money than United. United have been pretty poor sellers on the whole. Um, and and one of the main reasons, as you've touched upon, is is the wages. You know, it, it's why people like Phil Jones are still there, and and um, you know, to an extent, Anthony Martial when it looked like he was going to go. You know, nobody wants to take on those wages. Nobody can afford to. Um, so it, it, it narrows the market. But I think there will be... I mean, this is somebody who's the first choice for England and always plays well at major mm. tournaments. Um, I think there will be plenty of Premier League teams that would think signing Harry Maguire for I don't know, 30, 35 million, he might have to take a slight wage cut, who knows, would, would, would be good business. So, uh, um, yeah, I can see that happening. I think he needs to move to maintain his international career personally. Um, a coach can really only hold on to a player for so long at the top level and start them and keep them in that leadership role when they are on the park every single week. So I think, you know, that leaves him in a bit of a conundrum. But if we can stick to the the centre-back um part of Manchester United and this is uh, for me as a former defender Sam I'm very interested in this partnership uh, Martinez has obviously come in and established himself amazingly and, and uh, alongside Varane and you think uh, when, when I first saw them line up there and they were coming on against Manchester City I thought oh this could be all sorts of trouble here with Martinez's height obviously being a, a questionable um, but they seem to balance each other out and, you know, Martinez has that butcher tag as his uh, <laughs> as his nickname and, and we've seen moments of that this year. But what do you make of the partnership? I think, again, I mean, we talked about Casemiro sort of get, evoking memories of his impact with Cantona. Again, I saw Martinez and Varane prematurely again compared to Rio Ferdinand and Nemanja Vidic. And, and again, you know, if you're mentioned in that company, um, you know you must be doing something right. I mean, it's quite incredible that they're both World Cup winners now. Um, obviously, Varane arrived as a World Cup winner and, and Martinez has, has become one since. Um, it worked perfectly well. And, you know, I don't know about the size of uh, central defenders you played with, maybe, but, you know, five foot nine, I, I, I admit I, I had my doubts, but I know in the past there's been great ones like um, Fabio Cannavaro, Franco Baresi, um I think Carlos Puyo was only five foot ten. So, um, I mean, five foot nine is really as bad as small as you can be for a uh, central defender. But he has, uh, you know, compensated for that with an incredible uh, positioning, his tenacity. He wins, you know, balls against taller players in the air. But again, it's like Casemiro, the spirit, the character he brings to the side is is, is absolutely uh, absolutely incredible. And his passing, his passing from central defence is like having another central midfielder. You know, he breaks the lines, he, the, the, the ball's forward. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that partnership. Varane as well, we're seeing the best of Varane because he's in first season, he picked up some injuries. Solskjaer going to Ragnik, it was a chaotic season. But we're seeing now the, the real Raphael... Varane and Martinez and they've got a great chemistry and um, yeah seems to be working well because United have sort of struggled in that area f for years I mean you know last year Maguire and Lindelof that just did not look like a title winning or a trophy winning central defensive partnership and uh, they've stepped aside for these guys and, and um, they've been fantastic.
Let's move on to the club ownership situation because after the League Cup final, there were a lot of cutaways uh, to Avram Glazer and uh, also just uh, the shots in the tunnel as well. Uh, a bit of social media buzz started about the, the Glazers potentially getting cold feet. Uh, the idea of why would you want to sell now? It seems as though Manchester United are going to be entering a, an era of winning things again. Uh, where do you see the current sale of Manchester United at? And also, do you have a preferred ownership group uh, that could potentially come in, given the ones we've already heard about who've disclosed that they're bidding for the club? I wouldn't read too much into Avram Glazer being at uh, Wembley for the final. Avram Glazer's presence was possibly a message to the would-be buyers of United that they, they might not be going anywhere unless the, uh, the buyers raise their offers. Because my understanding is... Obviously, the Glazers are only in it for the money rather than the glory of days like Wembley. And they haven't been as impressed with the offers that have been made to uh, to them as they might be. And uh, if they're not upped, then they might, might stick around. So um, I think his presence there, and I think if I'm right, that was the first game, he, first or second game he'd been in three or four years. So they don't regularly go to Old Trafford was a was a, a calculated message to people who want to want to buy the club that they're quite cozy there and they might be sticking around unfortunately how, how do you feel about that uh, them sticking around and what is the sentiment on the ground about who the fans want to own this club i think the fans are, are divided are, are really divided you look at some opinion polls and they sway to and to and from i i feel that they've been beaten down by 18 years of the glazers ownership um, obviously, the only two public um, bids are from 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 Qatar and uh, Sir Jim uh, Radcliffe. I think there's a divide, really. There's the, there's the sort of global online social media support, and there's more maybe a locally based um, support at Old Trafford or or in Manchester. And there's maybe a divide there. there there's people who, who who don't care about the background of Qatar and just want to you know get rich quick and you know, let's get the richest owners and we can buy the best players and, and, and who cares? And there are people who are more nuanced about it and, and uh, want, want good owners that will look after the club and, and care. And obviously, United, a lot of fans don't want to be part of a sports washing project as Newcastle have been, as Manchester City have been. The same issues that were around the World Cup would, would would come up with United's ownership and that would make a lot of fans uncomfortable as well. I think, you know, is there a perfect billionaire out there? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there is. And, and uh, that's the problem. I think United's support. I think, I think I'm worried about what comes next because I think we're so glad to see the end of the Glazers. But what could come next? I wouldn't say be worse, but would certainly divide the fan base. Whereas beforehand, when uh, Rupert Murdoch and Sky tried to buy Manchester United in 1998, the, the, the fan base was absolutely against it. I remember a poll, 96% of fans were against it and they fought back against it because they didn't want to be a cog in a, in a big, uh, big corporation. And um, they, they were effective. You know, he didn't buy the club. But then, you know, seven years later, the Glazers strode into town. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's unfortunate. I think there's going to be a lot of infighting. We've, we've seen that already amongst fans online. There's been a lot of talk about Manchester United's facilities, uh, Carrington, uh, the future of Old Trafford, whether it needs to be knocked down and rebuilt from scratch. 
what's your perspective on it and, and how do you gauge the sentiment? Because there is that, again, a balancing act between the authentic experience of fans that have followed the team versus the tourist market, sort of the, the Barcelona Camp Now situation of how much of your, your match day attendance do you want to be people who are there on holiday to see Manchester United for the first and only time in their lives? And of course, the, uh, the prawn sandwiches, as Roy Keane <laughs> might say, the, uh, the corporate hospitality side of things as well. Well, I, think, I mean, interestingly, I don't know if you saw that, that United, there's, there's, there's hospitality boxes on, on that subject that United are stripping out of the Stretford end, um, which have been there for, for, for years and have diluted the atmosphere. So that that, that was a, a popular a popular move. But yes, I mean, Old Trafford um, was a source when, when United weren't winning things, even at the late 80s and the, to, to start the, the 90s was a source of pride as, as this this fantastic uh, football ground and United have, have been um, overtaken. Obviously you look at something like Tottenham's fantastic stadium, even the Emirates, which is nearly 20 years old. Um, and the Glazers have just n- not invested into Old Trafford into the, to the extent that it, it looks a bit slightly worn and, you know, there's been footage of leaks in the roof and, and uh, it needs a lick of paint here. I mean, it's still a, a fantastic stadium and on nights against Barcelona and so on you're not too worried about um, the structure of it but it certainly needs investment and 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 I think it it's actually um, it's actually too small still um, you know it's got a capacity of about 76,000 but even when United last year were absolutely dreadful after under Ralph Ragnick really in the depths of despair, they were still selling out. They were still selling out every game. People could not get tickets. So there's still more scope. And there's talk of building over the train tracks at the back of the uh, the South Stand, the, the Sir Bobby Charlton Stand. So there's a lot of money that needs to go in to, to increase the capacity, to upgrade it. I think some money's been spent at Carrington, but 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 yeah, that's slightly behind the, uh, behind the curve as... Uh, as well um but yeah so i mean obviously old trafford will be the big uh the big price tag in terms of new investors coming in and where where uh, where the fans want to see some money spent and last thing on manchester united i wanted to ask you about was the global brand i mean one of the reasons that manchester united is so powerful is because here in australia for instance people will get up to watch manchester united at all hours of the night on optus sport uh, and follow the team fanatically from all corners of the planet. So uh, where do you see the future of Manchester United's global brand, be it tours outside Europe and trying to make that global footprint? Could it even be returning to the Super League push? I know that uh, the Premier League clubs all got cold feet very quickly when it was first floated a couple of years ago, but where do you see Manchester United's global brand going in the short to midterm future? I mean, I, I think the strength of the brand is is incredible, really. If you think that uh, United remained the biggest club, they didn't win the league for 26 years between 1967 and 1993 uh, and remained the biggest club, in, in, in certainly in, in Britain. And, you know, they've now not won the title for 10 years and, and not won many trophies either. Um, and yet, um, as you said, you know, on tours of Australia or, or, or selling out Old Trafford, it just gets it just gets bigger and bigger. So with success, that would only turbocharge it. But but it it's one of those, yeah, horrible words, but it's true, one of those brands that just gets stronger and stronger. Um, and um, 
you know, I think if there's success around the corner, that will only get bigger. If you think in terms of the social media age, United haven't enjoyed, you know, last title was in 2013, last Champions League was 2008. So in this, this you know, so much of uh, football is consumed on social media now that they haven't been hugely successful, but they just keep growing and growing. The, the Super League, I, I just, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I just... It just doesn't, you know, playing Barcelona twice was special because it was the first time in four years since 2019. I don't think anybody I know wants to play Barcelona, Real Madrid twice a season. The Premier, the Premier League is so, you know, obviously Optus uh, screens it in Australia, so so great, so popular that the, the Premier League is the most exciting thing, and I think the Super League would be a, be a step down. And I, I, I don't. I think ultimately, you know, we're, we're we're consumers, and I think the Super League was driven by owners who wanted to make more money, and the consumers fought back and said we're not interested, and they they quickly dropped it. And I don't, in the last two years, I don't think that's changed. If anything, I think the Premier League has has, has become more. Um, Interesting, and I, I, you know, and I think you know, in terms of France, you've got PSG winning every year, Germany, um, Bayern Munich winning it every year, Spain. It's just largely okay. It's largely Barcelona, Real Madrid. In, in England, you have real competition. You even have it seems extraordinary Leicester City winning, which I still can't believe. You know, a few years later. So I think I think the Premier League's got even better in the last two years, and um, you know, as a, as a fan, I. I, I I have uh, no interest in the Super League and I don't think most people have. You're a fan of Manchester United and I hope that uh, you're a fan of their women's side as well, Sam. And I can't let you escape without turning the focus on the women's game. We've just seen Mary Earps obviously uh, pick up a FIFA award um, in the last couple of days. But uh, I want to turn to, I think, what is the talking point of Man U beside them being at the top of the table at the moment? And that is uh, keeping Alessia Russo and how important she is to the long-term success of this team, but also to their image and reputation at the moment. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think um, seeing United's women's team do so well is it, it, fantastic because for so long, that I have to say, that was a bit of embarrassment as a United fan because there were so many more teams that were ahead of the curve um, with women's football. And United was slow. They can't, I mean, they're seen as great innovators, but they can sometimes be very slow. And this was an example of it. But now they've they've seemingly, after a few stutters, got got behind it and, and really supported it with games at Old Trafford recently um, and more to come. I think it, it's been a huge success. And the fact that in the Lionesses, who, you know, winning the uh, Euros, uh, last year, there were, were several Manchester United players as well. That's only increased the interest. Um, and we talked earlier about being accessible. The women's game is still much more accessible. And I think that appeals to fans. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, it's been a great success and we'll, we'll certainly only get stronger. You're listening to The Gegen Pod. After this quick break, we'll run through the rest of the Premier League topics and some other world football headlines. Stay with us. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Gang and Pod. We have Optus Sport columnist Sam Pilger joining us this week and former Matilda Amy Duggan. And it's time to get into a little bit of rapid fire because it has been a Manchester United-themed show. But we're going to quickly whip around the rest of the Premier League, at least some of the bigger talking points. And Amy, we start with Leeds. No Michael Bridges this week because he's actually busy working. Oh, thank God he can't cheer squad away. Well, he's going to be pretty unhappy. They did win, though. He's going to be pretty unhappy because uh, (laughs) the game he's working on, Leeds uh, are losing to... To Fulham in the FA Cup, but they did win their first league game under Harvey Gracia, and maybe getting knocked out of the FA Cup won't necessarily be the worst thing for them, Amy, because it certainly has helped them in their battle against relegation. Well, what are they sitting 17th at the moment? So uh, just a point outside relegation. They need all the wins they can, and my advice is let everything else go and just concentrate on staying in the top tier this season. Sam, uh, West Ham also moved out of the bottom three with a much-needed 4-0 win against Nottingham Forest. What's your assessment of the relegation battle at the moment? Do you have any teams that you're certain will stay up or are certain will go down, given the form seems to fluctuate wildly every week? I don't think there's anybody that's been cut adrift yet. I mean, obviously, uh, I mean Southampton went to, went to Chelsea and, and, and won recently. Uh, Nottingham Forest have seemed to have pulled themselves clear. Uh, obviously, West Ham and Leeds in, in in danger. So no, I mean it, it's 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 looking quite an exciting uh, race, really. Sometimes there's a there's the team cut adrift on on ten points at this stage, but that isn't the case. So um, yeah, I, I still think teams can take points off each other, and and uh, yeah, nothing's been decided yet. At the other end of the table, Amy, uh, Arsenal and Manchester City both had wins. Uh, Not great for Harry Souter and Leicester City, of course, but Arsenal got past them. And Manchester City, they continued to roll along as well. We didn't learn, I think, a great deal about either team in the title race this week, other than to say they're both on track. Uh, They are both on track. And with just two points, the difference, this is almost going to be a case of who falters first, I think. Um, there's a lot of people that don't think Arsenal can hold on. I'm still hopeful that they can, but I'm even more hopeful that uh, Manchester United might just pick up a few more wins and the top two will capitulate and will sweep in and do a Stephen Bradbury and pick up the trophy. That's certainly going to be put to the test this weekend, Sam, because Manchester United are away at Anfield. I mean, off the back of a cup final, there aren't many games bigger than this one. What's your current read on how the team will look, but also how you think the match might go, given that Liverpool still have to play, uh, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, Wolves on Thursday morning Australian time. So they'll be coming off quite a short break. They will. I mean, I saw Liverpool in the flesh on uh, Saturday evening against Crystal Palace. I went to that game and and uh, expected more of a of a uh, reaction from Liverpool. I was really surprised. Uh, obviously, having lost five two to Real Madrid, the expectation from the Liverpool fans I spoke to or saw was that there would be a huge reaction, and there wasn't. I mean, obviously, drawing nil nil to Crystal Palace 
Um, and in fact, probably Palace had the better better chances in that game. So um, I know Nunes was was injured, who'd scored against Real Madrid, but they they looked a bit they looked a bit flat. Um, obviously, they got Wolves before, but I think they'll be roused. Obviously, at Anfield playing United, the crowd will get behind them. But uh, yeah, United haven't won there for six or seven seasons, so that that that's the chance to end that. But um, yeah, that'll be a very t- uh, tight game. Amy, how do you see that match uh, going? I mean, you're going to pick Manchester United to win, I assume. But uh, Liverpool, they've got a busy weekend. They do. I, I'm just on the Manchester United bus, Taylor. I think you know that. So I think, you know, I'll just stick with keeping it simple and uh, pulling on my jersey and hopefully wearing red again uh, after the weekend. Now, the FIFA Best was also held this week. It was certainly a head-scratcher that Sam Kerr wasn't in the top three finalists for the Women's Award. Alexia Pateas won it. Leo Messi won the Men's Award. But, Amy, at least there was some good news for Sam Kerr. She was in the FIFA Pro World Eleven. Yeah, I, firstly, can I say with Pateas picking up the top prize, I just don't get it. Uh, I think she's amazing, but, you know, we've hardly seen her play for the last... Uh, what is it, eight eight months now. So, uh, you know, I find it a little hard to swallow again. But anyway, eventually we'll get an Aussie up there. And yes, we had a few nominees for the World Eleven. Sam Kerr, the only Aussie to um, to make the squad. I, I, I thought the men's best 11 was interesting too, by the way, with the 3-4-4 formation, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, great to see an Aussie in there. Congratulations, Sam. Obviously playing 100 games for Chelsea now and scoring in that 100th match uh, on the weekend. So going from strength to strength and cannot wait to see her back on home soil for the Women's World Cup, which is, of course, right here on Optus Sport. And just last one, Amy, uh, speaking of the Matildas, they announced the World Cup farewell match against France, but they announced it at a a pretty interesting time because it it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) But a lot of the reporting out of France is that Corinne Diac, the French coach, is going to end up stepping down from her position. So what do you think of that entire situation? And also, uh, it's going to be perhaps a very different-looking French team that arrives at Marvel Stadium to take on Australia in that final friendly before the World Cup kicks off. Yeah, it's um, it's an, it's interesting. It's really great that we're playing top 10 nations again and France obviously ranked fifth in the world. It was a interesting timing, I agree, Teo, given that, you know, France have announced Corinne Diaca is under some serious pressure after a player revolt that's being led by their 32-year-old 150-odd cap, 42 caps, um, captain in Wendy Renard stepping down for preservation of mental health issues. That's also got Diani now and Katoto also announcing that they're going to boycott uh, the French team and the Women's World Cup. Will that player list continue to grow? I really hope not. Um, I do want the World Cup to see the best players on the paddock. And when you win any games or you're playing games as an international, you always want to be playing against the best. Um, it's a trend we're seeing across football, though, isn't it? You know, we've seen it with the Spanish women's team now. Um, the Canadian women recently had their own revolt over uh, conditions and the, the cutting of the budget for the national teams, not necessarily player budgets, but certainly uh, national team camp budgets. We've now seen it in France. Will Corindiaca survive? I doubt it. Um, so, yes, it probably will be a very new team that lines up uh, when Australia plays France, but does give us lots of headlines as we head towards the biggest tournament in the world this year. Well, it's uh, been a bumper gig and pot, especially for Manchester United fans. We might uh, restore a bit of balance next week, Amy, so uh, <laughs> make the most of it while the sun is shining. Sam, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of our listeners that uh, might have seen your work on Optus Sport, where else can they find you if they want to hear or read more of your work? 
I, I, well, I suppose social media as ever. Twitter is is where I post all my uh, my features. Yeah, no, I really enjoy writing for Optus. Um, with my my own Australian background, my parents are, are both Aussies, so uh, I uh, it's it's great to have a platform uh, in Australia. And and yeah, I write for other publications on. Uh, or everything posted on Twitter, so follow me there. Well, certainly uh, keep reading the Optus Sport website as well because it's Manchester United from Sam every week. Amy Duggan, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. Yes, a big thanks to our guests this week, Sam Pilger and Amy Duggan. The Premier League is back on Thursday morning, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, with Arsenal against Everton from 6.45 Australian Eastern Daylight Time and Liverpool against Wolves from 7am. Saturday action kicks off at 11.30pm with Manchester City against Newcastle. Catch five live games in Goal Rush at 2am on Sunday morning and then don't miss the big one on Monday morning at 3.30am when Liverpool plays Manchester United at Anfield. All times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. La Liga is back on Saturday morning at 7am when Real Sociedad plays Cadiz and you can catch Barcelona's showdown with Valencia at 2.15am on Monday morning and Real Madrid's trip away to Real Betis at 7am on Monday morning. All times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. The WSL is back with Manchester United hosting Leicester City from 11.30pm on Saturday Australian Eastern Daylight Time as one of our four live games this weekend. And don't forget you can watch the J-League and K-League live on Optus Sport. Jump onto the Optus Sport website or app for broadcast details. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. I'm Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was The Gegenpot. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.